Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mistress Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 193 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Jack Collins from Dead Poets Society, I want to remind you about everything you can find online at mistresscarry.com. You can find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast and every sit rep. All of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates every weekday. You'll also find every episode of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, the event and concert calendar covering all the shows coming through New England. You can check out my blog, photo galleries, and shop in the online Mistress Carrie store. Find all that and more at mistresscarrie.com. My guest this week, Jack Collins, is the guitarist in Dead Poets Society a band that formed at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Back on episode 50, we met the singer Jack Undercoffler just before they released their last album that I still don't know how to pronounce because it had dashes and an exclamation point. Don't worry, we'll get to that this time. The band has just released their latest album, the easier-to-pronounce Fission. And as they're preparing to head to Europe on a massive touring schedule, Jack Collins caught up with me while driving to tour rehearsal to talk about inspiration, the school of rock, his first guitar, his love of U2 and The Edge, songwriting, traveling, the MSG sphere, naming albums, starting the band in Boston, picking a set list for their tour, and so much more. Dead Poets Society will be at Sinclair in Cambridge, Massachusetts, coming up on May 6th. Those tickets are available now. Just click the link to get tickets in the show notes of this episode. So, allow me to introduce you to Jack Collins from Dead Poets Society. Jack, how are you? Hello. I'm great. I love the energy. (laughs) I'm excited to have the other Jack from the band because the last time you guys released an album, I got the other Jack from the band. Ah, yeah. The the less special one. I'm the more special one. I'm always amazed at what guys are doing when I'm talking to them. Um, Sometimes I get a look at their home studios and offices, and every once in a while I get a look inside their vehicles. You're driving right now, so be careful. I will be. I will be. I'm, You know, I'm bumped because if we did the call an hour ago, it would have been in my studio, and it would have been a lot cooler, I think, for for first impressions, you know? (laughs) Where are you right now? I'm in uh, Huntington Beach, California, and I'm on my way to a town called Santa Ana, 
where we do rehearsals and band practice and everything band related. The traffic and, uh, well, the weather obviously warmer than, say, Boston and Berkeley right now, which is where I am not far from. So I'm envious of the warm temperatures you have. Oh, yep. I know all about that. <laughs> I, uh, I remember being there. It's I'm, pretty great. <laughs> I'm assuming you don't miss the temperatures of Boston in January, though. Not one bit. <laughs> and Yeah, when, when, once I left, it, it was... Uh, you know, we've been out here for, I think, six or seven years now. And there's no part of me that misses the seasons or the cold weather at all. Which, you know, when you first move, make a big move like that, you're unsure. But never happened to me. I love the warm weather all the time. You I don't, can't get enough. You don't miss the snow around the holidays and the fall leaves over the Charles? Like, none of that? The fall leaves are pretty. I do miss that. Um, but when it comes to snow, you can actually, you know, in California, you have the snow. So you can have it whenever you want in the winter. So a lot of people think, oh, when you're in California, you know, you're disconnected from it. But if you want the winter, it's two hours away. That's the way I look at it. So you can have a little bit of everything. We do not have palm trees anywhere within driving distance. <laughs> I'm very aware. Yeah. <laughs> when I got to know, Jack, from the last record, um, we talked a lot about like the formation of the band and kind of that environment at Berkeley where you have so many amazing musicians of all types that are kind of in this pressure cooker there. It's an interesting way to meet a band. So I actually tell people, you know, if you want to, if you're thinking about going to Berkeley to start a band, you, you'll have just as much luck moving to that area and just hanging out in that three, four block radius. It's the best place that I've ever been to to meet musicians better than LA. I think for sure. Cause it's so everybody's, you know, similar age, <clears throat> similar age and similar interests. And it's, it's so compact. It's a great, great place to start a band. It always seems like the littlest girls are carrying the biggest cellos too. When I walk down and around <laughs> that area, it's always like uh -huh. the big dude carrying the flute and the tiniest girl carrying the tuba. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that is signature, signature Berkeley right there. When did you get your first guitar? Was it something you always realized that you just wanted to play? Um, I got my first guitar six months after my mom played guitar for me for the first time. So I had a, uh, just a quick little sequence of inspirations starting with the movie school of rock really trying to change my life. When I think I was 10 years old, I saw that movie and I'd never heard any of that music before I left the movie theater, a different person. And then the next day my mom came out with her acoustic guitar and said, Hey Jack, you remember this? She played smoke on the water with the bar chords and it just sounded like I can't even describe how amazing it sounded to me. Hearing her play that song, but it was just my jaw dropped. So I picked up our little uh, nylon guitar. It was like a $30 guitar in the corner. And I just started learning on that. I became obsessed. And my mom made me save up my allowances for many months to buy my first guitar. That was the story of my first guitar. I have a theory about music that there's 
the soundtrack to your childhood that you get exposed to unwillingly by your parents or your older siblings, and then you hear something that changes everything and you decide, oh, wait, I like that. So if School of Rock at 10 years old made you appreciate rock music, what was the soundtrack to your childhood that you were listening to at home as a kid? You mean before I saw the movie? Yeah. What were you listening to growing up that you hadn't heard that music before? You know, it was awful. It was, I had a Backstreet Boys CD. (laughs) I I listened to a lot of Smash Mouth. Um, I heard... I wasn't super into music either. I'd never, I, I was forced to take piano lessons, which ended up being a great thing, but I was just not, I never, it never occurred to me that music was fun or interesting. It was just something that I, you know, I listened to a couple of records here and there, CDs actually. But after the school of rock movie, when I found out about all the great bands, which happened in one night, I remember the next day, I think it was, I I broke my Backstreet Boys CD in half. <laughs> Talk about I was so mad. I was just so mad that I hadn't known about that whole world. Very passionate. And obviously your mom knew about rock music because she just whipped out smoke on the water like on the fly. Right. Right. And my dad then afterwards when I got interested in guitar, my dad was like, Oh, have you heard the Ramones? Have you heard uh ACDC and all this. And I, it was just came out of the blue, I guess. You know, they didn't really play those things around the house for some reason before then. And I don't know why. Maybe they were trying to raise you to grow up and be a respectable young man. You know, I think, that, I think that's fair. <laughs> and then they you, miss out. And then man, you, did they screw up. Then your brain gets rotted by school of rock, blame Jack Black and Led Zeppelin and ACDC. Yeah. Please tell me you still have that nylon string acoustic. Do you still have it? No way. Oh. No way, I wish. But I still I still have the first guitar that I saved up my allowance uh with. I still have that guitar. What was it? What was the, the first that purchase? Was a, it was a Red Squire, uh Fender Squire. The classic, you know, you get the starter pack. They still sell the exact same thing today. And I bought that twenty years ago now. Crazy. Did but it come yeah, with I still have this amp? Yeah, with the little amp and the little square knob for distortion, you push that in. Yeah, it was magical. It was magical when I first got it. It was you know, I don't think I've ever had a sensation like that since of just playing a chord, getting the chord down, and then engaging the distortion and just blasting it. I mean, the feeling of that when you're that young, at least for me, was it was just life changing. Where would rock and roll be without those Fender Squire starter packs? So many bands. <laughs> that's a good idea. So many bands talk about that's, that's how they point. got their start. Like that thing needs to have a statue because so many bands I agree. started from there. I couldn't agree more. It's so important. It's such a huge, yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you. And there's something to that sound that, there have been guitarists that have told me that they've used it recording because they they got it to make a noise that no other guitar, no how, no matter how expensive, could get it to make. But that Squire got him to make it. Oh wow! You know, I haven't recorded with it since I was in middle school when I first tried recording, so I wouldn't even know what it really sounds like anymore. 
but I'm not surprised because there are guitars from my childhood that I still play in our band today. So I'm not surprised. Well, I know you guys just released a new album. And uh, so obviously it's going to be a while before you go in the studio again, but uh, Mm -hmm. bring the Squire into the studio next time and see (laughs) if you could put it on a new dead poet society album. You know, that's not a bad idea. Honestly, (laughs) I just have to go to Pennsylvania to get it out of my grandmother's basement. That's, that's where it is right that's now. That's where it is right now. How many yeah. how many guitars are in grandma's basement? It's my first, that guitar, and I also bought a bass guitar around the same time. And they're both sitting there. And the bass guitar, I don't, yeah, I haven't used it since then either. So there's just two guitars. But I, I discovered them last Christmas down in the basement. I didn't even know they were there. So you're just going to, you're going to leave them be for now. Right. Exactly. I feel like they're in a safe place. (laughs) It's weird that you bought a bass around the same time as the guitar. Getty Lee said in an interview sometime last year that nobody sets out to play the bass. Everybody plays guitars and then you join a band and somebody's got to play bass and you get voted in and forced into it. That is exactly the story of our original bass player. That's exactly what happened. And and our current bass player, now that I think about it, both of them were guitar players that wanted to play guitar. But we needed a bass player. So figure it out. Getty Lee knows all. Yep, he does. <laughs> he's, he's absolutely right. So when you started playing that Squire and you hit your first chord and the distortion button, what was the first song that you kind of figured out where you were like, oh my God, I think I actually get it now? It was Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. Really? Yeah. I actually haven't thought about this. I've, n- I've never talked about this, actually. I don't think about it ever. So, yeah, it was the it was Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. It's just that because it's so easy you just hit the chord, you know? You let it ring out. And it's just... And I don't even think I was playing it right. I think that might actually be a bass in the recording, but... I was doing it with uh, power chords and the and the open chords, you know, like ACDC style. And man, did it sound good to me. <laughs> <laughs> did you do the big arm move too? Like, did you know about that? I tried. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, I was working on that before I learned my fifth chord. There's a total difference between musical ability and being able to play and being able to write songs. And it comes up Mm. on my show all the time because I I can't do either. So I'm envious Mm. of the craft. When did you realize you could write songs? And do you remember the first song you ever wrote? Yeah, it was almost immediately after I bought that guitar, believe it or not. I I actually consider myself more of a songwriter than a guitar player. Maybe it's because of the fact that I don't think I'm, you know... I wouldn't put myself in the category of like great guitar players. So songwriting to me is more of a passion, but I, I, I always wanted to be in a band so much so that right when I bought that first guitar at 10 years old, I started a band with my neighbor. She played keyboard and we auditioned for the talent show. And that I was already, I, I sat down and I tried to write a song and I wrote a song. I think it was called billionaire. And it was about nothing. <laughs> but I went on rhymer.com 
and I felt really guilty about it and didn't learn so much later that that's a completely common tool to use. But I used it at the time and I just rhymed like three or four sentences in a row. And I wrote my first song and we auditioned for the talent show shortly after that. And I formed it in front of my middle school. I sang and played out of my Squire amp. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was just awful. But I got that's how I got addicted. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. That, and I, that's, I fell in love with songwriting then when I was 10 years old. So it's been the whole time. There was no, you know, it wasn't late high school or anything. It was right from the get-go. I just always have loved writing songs. You said you don't consider yourself like a, a great guitar player. Who do you consider great guitar players? Like, who are the ones for you? <laughs> Well, I'm going to contradict myself now because from my perspective, my favorite guitar players are not necessarily the most technically skilled. My favorite guitar player of all time is Edge from U2. And uh, I think that's a very unpopular opinion among guitar players because he's his style is super simplistic. And But he has a quote that I love um, where he says, notes are expensive. So he chooses his notes very carefully and you can tell that in their songs and everything he plays is perfect, perfectly in sync and perfectly melded with the melody and the vocals and even the lyrics. And it's just, it's, it's, it's the, I've seen you two three or four times live now and it's just perfect. He's just, you know, so he's probably my favorite. And then the list goes down on from there, you know, According to Bono, they're supposed to be working on a new album, and he told The Edge he wanted it to be an unreasonable guitar record. And when The Edge asked him how unreasonable, he said, as unreasonable as you want to make it. So this <laughs> album for you is going to be amazing. Oh, man. Oh, to be 20 albums deep in a band. What a dream. <laughs> Did you get a chance to see him at the Sphere in Vegas? I know you've been extremely did. busy. Did you go? Yeah, I took my dad for his birthday, and uh, it was incredible. It was it was very enviable. It was like not only my band, but how can any band on earth top top this? You know, you know, we have all, bands have lights, people, chore choreography, all this. Nothing compares to that screen in that environment. It's just. It just topped everything that's ever come before it. I mean, I'm convinced of it. So, but it was great. It was amazing. I was in Vegas opening night and obviously the tickets were impossible, but I was outside. The outside skin screen is impressive. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine the inside. It's jaw dropping. You have to experience it. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a one of a kind experience and there's no way you can even somewhat understand it through video. That's what I think. So I, I recommend it to everybody. And I know it's, I, I know it's, it's popular already. So everybody already knows about it, but it really is the real deal. I heard you get vertigo if you're standing in certain parts of it because it's so steep and so overwhelming. You know, I'm like, I, I, that's what I thought would happen to me. And it is steep, but I adjusted really quickly and I was totally fine. Like almost immediately. And, but I do, I was nervous about that before I got there too, because it is steep, but it's not like, it doesn't feel a, sorry, I just keep swiping left for some reasons. Oh. I'm going to stop doing that. <laughs> it doesn't feel as 
scary as like even a football stadium or um, because it doesn't look like everything's all the way down there because the whole screen is up to the top. So it's like being in a movie theater, you know. Now that you guys are getting ready to go on this massive European tour before you come back to the States and are actually in Cambridge, um, does a production like that make you look at what you guys are working on and just go, oh man, like you two just ruined live concerts for every other band ever. It's funny. When I discovered the sphere on TikTok and I saw the video, I showed Jack while we were at a show, while we were setting up to play our show, I forget where we were, somewhere in the U.S. And I showed it to him and I said, dude, look how crazy this looks. And he said to me, I think what we're doing tonight is the exact opposite of that. <laughs> we were playing this like tiny little bar. But then it makes me think like, you know, as much as I did love that show, as spectacular as it was, I don't think it was my favorite show of all time. You know, I some of my favorite shows of all time have been the opposite of that. So there's, it doesn't need to be all glamorous and have all the bells and whistles for it to be a great show. I don't think there just needs to be an energy in the room at the time. So we always try our best to to do that. And I think we will again. Well, I think a great band is a great band, no matter where you see them. I saw you two at the Somerville theater, super small, tiny place. But when the band is amazing and the music sounds good, that's kind of all you need. I mean, that's the beauty of rock and roll. Bingo. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. You guys have this extensive touring plan for the next like five months of your lives. You're going to be all over Europe. Is there a place that you look forward to going to because of the fans, the food? Just where do you really look forward to playing once you get outside the States? Oh, yeah. Well, I love it. I love Europe. Um, every city we go to is pretty much you know, beautiful. My favorite places are Prague. I love Prague. We've been two or three times now. Um, it's just, it feels like Disneyland when you go, <laughs> the food is great that we have a few of our favorite spots there now in that city, which may be kind of touristy spots, but we still love them. And it's kind of like a place where we always go out and have a good time. Amsterdam is the same way. We love Amsterdam. I love Amsterdam. It's gorgeous. Everything feels like a, you know, a storybook. The whole city is like that, which I didn't realize until we got there. Food is phenomenal in Amsterdam. I love Paris. Um, I love playing in Paris. I love the feeling of Europe gives me this feeling that I'm almost on a different planet. It's so different than our country. That it's just, it feels like the ultimate adventure every time we're there. And I hope that never goes away because we've already been there three or four times now. And I'm hoping that's enough for me to realize it's going to stay this way. It's going to feel like an adventure every time because it really does. Well, you guys spent time in Boston, which is one of the older cities in the United States. And when you compare Boston to Paris or so many of those European cities, it's like it doesn't even, it's like, oh, that's old. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep, exactly. Um, when I talked to Jack before the last album came out, we had a long discussion about naming albums. Thank you for not naming this album with punctuation as well, because it made it difficult for people to try and figure out how to say it. I know. I know. 
Uh, that's funny you said that to me because I was pushing for a different symbol for this album, but I got voted out. <laughs> but I didn't actually come up with that. Will came up with that symbol, the title of the last album. Um, well, I wanted to contribute to that for this album, but they, everybody said, no, we're not doing that again. So where, whose idea was Fission then? Um, it came from me. I have this list of names that I've, that I've, that I've collected over the years, over many, many years. I have just a big list of names for things that um, usually end up being song titles. And it was one of the names in my list. I can't even remember where I thought of it because what happens is I'll just be driving around. Oh, that's cool. I don't even think about it. I'm writing it down. And then when the album started to finish up, we, we were like, okay, any ideas? And we just eat our own lists. I went over my list and Fission was in there. And Dylan was like, I like that one. And everybody else said, I like that one too. And I said, okay. And then we started sort of crafting our vision around the title, I think. You know, we hadn't finished writing the songs either. So we were able to sort of incorporate what Fission means in different songs, things like that, which was fun. Do you keep those album title or is it on a note in your like in your iPhone or something? Yeah. Yeah. It's in my notes on my iPhone. Yeah. Do you put song ideas the same way? Because that seems to be another trend that I'm realizing with songwriters is that you get these ideas. And if, if we broke into your phone, there's gotta be albums worth of stuff just sitting in there. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I've been keeping the list of names a lot longer, but recently as of about a year ago, I have my song concepts, song ideas list and I had it for a while, but I just couldn't figure out how to like write stuff down for song concepts. But as of about a year ago, it's been going crazy. So now, yeah, now I have a massive list of song concepts and ideas. Some of them are the worst, like just stuff that I, I barely want to admit to myself, you know, really deep, dark things. And I just put them down and hope that no one sees the notepad. <laughs> I hope you have that person designated that if anything ever happens to you, that they go in and swipe your phone. And like, you know, the people say, oh, you got to get your buddy to <laughs> wipe your browsing history to get all the weird porn off of there, too. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> and honestly, it feels like that sometimes. I mean, it's it's personal. So it's, you know, it's not necessarily like fucked up. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's growing. And I, I think if there are any songwriters listening, it's, it's something that I wish I did a lot longer ago is come up with a song concept list. And I feel like I'm kind of a rookie with that now, but every time I sit down to write a song, it's so much easier because I just look at one of those lines or one of those ideas and I go, Oh, that's right. I forgot that I felt that way. So is it, is your process lyric first riff first melody first? Do you in that, in like the song concept list, are you noting melody or or riffs and chords or is it just lyric ideas it's it's just lyric ideas my voice memos is where i record guitar riffs um but the songwriting process for me, the songwriting process for me is it has to be different almost every single time because songwriting to me is about creating something brand completely new so i can't do the same thing every time because that doesn't warrant that result and so for me, it's more about um, fostering the environment for creativity. And that could be in a number of different ways, but I prioritize 
creativity, like, and it's a state of mind that I'm sure a lot of artists understand. It's a state of mind that you have to be in where you can allow yourself to accept new ideas, which is really difficult. It's really difficult, especially if you've been playing music your whole life. It gets harder and harder because you've heard everything before. So you have to, you have to think of new ways to spark that creativity that you had when you were a kid. And fortunately, I'm able to do that a lot of the time. And I don't know how much longer I'll be able to do that for, but fortunately, I'm still able to get really inspired and create in a number of different ways. The other part of the creative process that kind of freaks me out is the idea, like you said, with these really personal, dark kind of ideas in your iPhone and you start crafting this song and then you've got to get to the point where that trust with your bandmates is there, where you're like, hey guys, I have this thing. I hope you don't think it sucks. Like that is so cringy to me that they would be in a mm -hmm. position to be like, that sucks. Like that would crush me. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would ever come back from that. It's brutal. It's the most, it's one of the most brutal parts of being in our band. I think a lot of bands are run by one person. Usually the singer, they do the lyric writing, the melody writing, and everybody else is supportive of that person. And a lot of times that works great with exact opposite. We, have four opinions, four songwriters, four lyric writers, and four very emotional grown male adults. And so, yeah, it's exactly what you said. You, the only way to get something great is to dive as deep into yourself as possible, put it on paper and try to make it sound good. And then you share it with a grown man and they have to connect with what you're feeling in order for it to work. And 80% of the time they don't. And you get rejected and it happens to all four of us and it's brutal and it's brutal and we get angry and we argue, but we've been doing it for a long time and we somehow figure out how to get from point A to point B. It sounds like absolute agony to me as somebody that's been hosting their own show by themselves for like 27 years. That just sounds so terrible. <laughs> it, you know, it is. It, 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 the way I'm describing it, it does sound terrible, but the reward is so massive. It's hard to explain because, you know, if you write a song that means a lot to you and to everybody else, and you get to play it and perform it with your best friends around the world. I mean, it's the perfect, it's the perfect life really. So, so, you know, the sacrifice, the heartbreak, which we're, we've, we're used to, by the way, you know, it's not new. The heartbreak is worth it and it still is. And every song on this album means something to me. And I've contributed to every song pretty much or, or contributed a big chunk to a lot of the songs. So for, for, you know, to, for each of us to have our own voice on the album is really special. Songwriting comes up all the time. And one of the things I always ask songwriters is to, is to give me an example of a song that you think is perfectly crafted by any other artist, by any genre of music, like that's inconsequential, but is there a song from someone else that you just look at and go, man, I wish I wrote that song. That song is perfect. All the time, all the time. All the time. There's a lot of new bands that are, uh, that are great. Um, I'll give you like my top ones are, um, oh my God, why am I blanking? Um, 
Bixie or Coldplay is, I think, a perfect song. Literally, I've said that before. It's a perfect song. Um, Our Time is Running Out by Muse. I mean, those are songs that when I listen to them, I want to lock my guitar away and give up. <laughs> like I'm, I get seriously envious of great songs. And I'm always jealous when I hear a great song. Always. But then I fall, you know, I fall in love with it. So it's a double-edged sword. The other thing that's got to be weird, you, you write this song with your bandmates and you guys battle it out and then you decide what to name it. You stress over the artwork and the sequencing of the songs and you get this thing that you are happy with and then you let us have it. And whatever might be our opinion of it, that has got to be weird because you're hoping that people love it, but like, oh, how much would it suck if they don't? Like, Mm -hmm. what if my baby's ugly? (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's, that's a huge part of it. It's, you know, on one hand, we're so lucky and we're so lucky to have an audience that's willing to listen to it because the first four or five years of our band, I mean, there was no one, not even our friends liked our music. They didn't listen to it. <laughs> it's that's how it goes for a, for most artists. You know, our friends didn't even like it and we're putting it out. We really loved it. And we were just hoping, Oh my God, could just someone comment, like <laughs> tell us you hate it or something. There was just nothing, you know? So now, I've we, so over the years, we've been just having an audience to share the music with because that's just, that's really everything at the end of the day. We've had songs that have, from from our perspectives at the time, had blown up. Now, the definition of a song blowing up is, you know, is is subjective. But from our perspective, it, it we've had songs that did way better than we thought they would. And... There's a, there's a feeling of satisfaction there, but at, when years pass, those songs don't necessarily mean more to you than the songs that didn't do well, you know? So I try to keep that perspective in mind. Like, we release these songs, of course, I would love people to love them, but I keep thinking years, years the only thing that's going to matter is how much I love them. There are a few if constants in rock and roll, obviously, where an audience gravitates towards a song and makes it personal and you know like you were talking about with Coldplay and Muse or you know the Edge's guitar it's like you love it because you love it no matter whether or not somebody else loves it there are other constants in rock and roll and that has to do with the live show right the performance that that immediacy of feedback with the audience and as you get ready to go and play new songs, there's that trust fall of how they're reacting to those new songs. Now that you guys have so much music, are you guys battling over what songs are in the set list and where the new ones go? And is there a fight amongst the band over what makes the cut? I swear you must have a camera in our rehearsal space. (laughs) I don't know how you nailed that so well, but that's exactly what we've been doing. That's exactly what I'm about to go do. Is we argue, I've been arguing for, you know, let's throw some deep cuts on there. And the other, you know, another guy says, well, but shouldn't we play the album? Like we wrote these songs, we want to play them live. So everybody's uh, argument is valid, but we just go, we, we go in circles and circles until we're all ready to just give up and just say, okay, fine, this is it. And we got there at our last practice, but <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> 
Well, I interview a lot of bands, and as different as you all are, there are certain things that are always the same. The battle over the set list is I'm a sure. continuing battle. Yeah. One of the other things that's always the same is that something is always going to go wrong. And now that we know there's a new Spinal Tap mm -hmm. movie in the works, everybody, Spinal Tap is brilliant because it proves itself to be true every day. So what's your worst Spinal Tap moment? The worst thing that has gone wrong on stage for you? Oh my God. In our band. Well, yeah, there's got to be several moments. Um, there was one recently. We played uh, Rocklahoma, which is a festival, last year. And it was the first show of the tour. And Will and I decided to get to party the night before in our hotel room and uh, drank way too much, way, way, way too much. And the next morning we woke up and we realized that our set was actually an early set at 11 a.m. So we got up. I was still drunk <laughs> and forced my way into the van. We were... 30 minutes late to sound check. I think we sound checked for two minutes max. We couldn't hear a single thing on stage. I was in a daze. I could I I couldn't even really process what was going on. I remember maybe a couple minutes of the whole set. And then when I got off, I was hungover. Like I, I wasn't even hungover while we were playing. I was hungover after we stopped playing. And then I, then I got sick and I ended up in the ER tent and it was a disaster. And Jack rightfully so scolded me afterwards. He said, you can't do that again. And he was right. It was a mistake and it was a disaster. And it was so bad. It was just terrible. So we, you know, we're still learning 10 years in. I am at least. There's nothing worse than being an active participant in your hangover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're supposed to sleep through that and wake up with it. But when you're actually awake through the hangover process it's absolute agony absolutely oh my god it was awful it was awful before i let you go you're obviously going to be out on the road for a while and it's got to be a little bit of a strange homecoming for you guys to come back to boston you're going to be at sinclair on may 6th Mm. And so what do you look forward to? Is there a place you guys used to eat when you were in school that you go back to? Like, what do you like to do when you come back to Boston? Well, I forget. Where is the Sinclair again? Like what area of Boston? Do you know? Harvard Square, like that area. Oh, Harvard Square. There's no restaurants other than I used to go to that Shake Shack there before there was Shake Shack everywhere. Um, there's no restaurants in Harvard Square that I can remember regularly going to, but I love, we love going to Boston because we still have groups of friends there. And the last show we played in Boston, we just like all our friends showed up and everybody's just skating outside and just having a good time. And it was like, we were back in college for like an hour or two, which is weird because we're only there for a night. And it's like after the show and you're with your friends hanging out, doing what you used to do. It's almost like no time has passed, but in the back of your head, you're like, I'm here for three more hours and then I'm gone. It's, it's, so it's, it's, it's strange, but it's one, of, it's one of my favorite stops. And I think we'll always be. Bye guys. I have to get on my tour bus and leave town. <laughs> there is some glory to it. There is a little bit of glory to it. And I'm sure the guest list for the show that night is long. You know, I didn't even, I, 
forgot that we were playing there, honestly, until you just reminded me. This is the longest tour schedule we've ever had. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to try not to like analyze everything, just take it day by day. That's kind of my style. So I forget which cities we're playing here and there. It's a strategy of mine. It's going to be a lot warmer here by the time you get here. So between now and then, we'll be freezing our asses off. You guys will be gallivanting around Europe and playing like massive festivals. When you're not actively engaged in a hangover, do you like to go and watch the other bands at these giant festivals? That's got to be cool. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love it. I love it. We, yeah, every single festival. Uh, Will and I are, are usually team up and and scour the festival fields all day long and usually see three or four different bands and we get in the pit and jump around and it's great and i can't wait yeah you guys are going to be at shaky knees this year you got a bunch of cool Mm -hmm. tour stops this year i know i know we're so freaking grateful seriously i was just gonna say you know it's hard to wrap my head around it you know i i like moments like these because i i forced to reflect on it and think about it But yeah, just so grateful that we have these opportunities. Well, the new album, Fission, is out, and uh, it's going to be a massive year. The tour is going all over Europe, all over the U.S., stopping on May 6th in Cambridge at Sinclair. And I'll put all of the links and everything to get tickets and all of that in the show notes of the episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. No problem. Thanks, Carrie. It was awesome. There he is, Jack Collins from Dead Poets Society. The band's new album, Fission, is available everywhere. They'll be in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Sinclair coming up on May 6th. Tickets are on sale now. Check the link in the show notes of this episode to get them. While you're there, you can also get the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the podcast that has all of my guest music and all the songs and artists that we referenced in the interview. You'll also find the link to episode 50 featuring lead singer Jack Undercoffler. And you'll find all of Dead Poet Society's links and all the Mistress Carrie links as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep with all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates in around five minutes. And you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. Join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And of course, you can always find me on the radio. Get the details on all of that and more at MistressCarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.